and we're back with the Animal Chat Podcast. Harry Ekman, hello. Matthew Payne, hello. How you doing? Hello, listeners. Hello, listeners. So, Harry, guess what I've been up to? What have you been up to, Matt? I've been getting fat. <laughs> so, in lockdown, you know how most people use this opportunity, Harry, to do lots of exercise? You know what? I'm not sure if that's true. It feels like it, though, doesn't it? It feels like it because everybody's posting things on Facebook about yeah. their workouts. And I know when this first started, everybody was posting Joe Wicks videos and they were doing workouts every morning with their kids. You know what? This was about you and now I'm just <laughs> going to take it over and tell you about me. We started off like everybody else, not sure where this was going to go, not sure how long it was going to last with the best of intentions, doing a bit of exercise, making sure we were eating healthy. And then however many weeks in, it just went to shit. Yeah. And we then binged and did no exercise yeah. and then became, I mean, I look at Jabba the Hutt now <laughs> and think that's something to aspire to. <laughs> I look like a potato. <laughs> We're doing better now. We kind of did a little bit of a turnaround and thought, no, this is ridiculous. Like if coronavirus doesn't kill us, then heart disease is going to. There was definitely a period there where food and lack of movement <laughs> was, was the most important thing in the world. I start exactly the same thing. I started this all off doing Joe Wicks. I actually was doing his program. No offense to Joe Wicks, I'm sure it works for a lot of people, but it just didn't work for me. I found it a little bit tedious. I don't think it works for Joe Wicks anymore. He's not doing them anymore. No, he's a, but you can do his program. He put on like 23 kilos. <laughs> like you wouldn't recognize Joe Wicks now. Him and Zub are my enemies right now. So I, um, I just have been eating rubbish, ordering takeaways, not moving much. But Harry, I am going to make a turnaround now. It's all good. It's fine. I am going to do, I'm going to get my kickboxing back up um, you've seen my little red man, haven't you, Harry? I'm still not convinced. You said you bought this grappling doll yeah. for your martial arts training. Yeah. It's not a grappling doll. It is. It's a sex doll, Matt. Hey, listen. A grappling doll doesn't have a lifelike face and the number of orifices <laughs> that, that thing does. But yeah, so I, I'm going to make a turnaround. In behavior change, apparently, if you make a public commitment, it helps you. So this is your public commitment. Yeah, I'm going to go from a potato into a leek. That's the that's what I'm going for, Harry. A potato to a leek? Yeah, a potato. May I ask or... why specifically you chose a leek as the vegetable of reference for your slim, slim, aspiration? Slim, but with fur yeah. top. <laughs> To represent my hair and my Chechen warlord beard that I'm growing at the moment. So, and uh, do you have you have to honour your girlfriend, isn't it? Because she's yeah. Welsh. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to say? I'm not going to say anything. No. Welsh. I'm not saying my grandmother was Welsh. I've just realised something. What? I got a leek and a celery mixed up. <laughs> I want to look like a celery. That's the one that's streamlined with furry at the top, isn't it? Where a leek is just streamlined. Well, it's clear from this conversation yeah. how long it's been since you've eaten the fucking vegetable. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um. So this is your commitment. You are going on a health kick. Um, yeah, kind of. I'm going to start kickboxing with a little bit more regularity. I've had enough of being a potato. So, Harry. Yes. Now we've talked about our weight issues. Your weight issues. Unbelievable. <laughs> Boy, have we got a good episode today. This is such a great episode. Wow. Our guest this week. Who is it, Matt? It's none other than Jill Robinson. So Jill Robinson 
founded the Inspirational Animals Asia. Amazing organisation. They are amazing. They're world leaders, really, aren't they? They are. They're just amazing. They work, funnily enough, in Asia. Tell me what they do, Harry. Tell the listeners what they do. They help animals. They work in Asia and they help animals, That's and hence the name Animals Asia. Well, should I done? I should probably have done some more background reading on this. <laughs> no, <laughs> listeners, <laughs> that Animals Asia is one of the most groundbreaking and influential organisations, not just working in Asia but around the world. The work they do is incredible. They're known specifically for rescuing moon bears and sun bears from the bear bile trade, which we talk about with Jill in this podcast. It's a horrible, horrendous, awful, and cruel thing that goes on. Awful. But they have rescued hundreds and hundreds of bears from this trade. And the stories that she tells about this are quite incredible. But Animals Asia does a lot more than that as well. They have programs that deal with all kinds of animals in captivity and animal welfare issues in Asia. But it's not just that. We talk about her life and how she yeah. started the organization and everything else, don't we, Matt? Yeah, and how she moved from the UK out to Hong Kong and how the difficulties with that and the change that she had to deal with and what it's like. I mean, you know firsthand, Harry, I don't, but setting up your own organisation isn't easy. But setting up your own organisation in an entirely different continent is a challenge in itself. So absolutely, Jill talks about that and much, much more. So should we just get on with this? Let's get on with it. I can't wait to share this episode with everybody. So here's this week's episode of Animal Chat with the incredible Jill Robinson. Can I tell you a joke? Yeah, please do. <laughs> so a bear goes into a bar and he says, I'll have a pint of lager and a packet of crisps, please. And the bartender says, yeah, sure, but why the big pause? And the bear says, I don't know. <laughs> 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 oh, that's You've had this lifelong love of animals from your childhood. When you were younger, you did a lot of volunteering before you actually got into animal welfare. But during that time, I guess you always knew that you wanted to work with or be involved in animals. But did you have an idea of what that would look like? Or was it, I just want to be involved in animals. And when I get the opportunity, I'll, I'll kind of work it out as I go along. Oh, gosh, what a loaded question. <laughs> um, I just think like many, many teenage girls of that era when I was growing up, I just wanted to be a vet. I just, as you say, you know, you, you love animals so much and you want to channel your passion into something really tangible and there wasn't anything like all the degree courses or all the opportunities that you have today of course I think pretty much the only thing in those days was literally to go out and be a vet so that's what I definitely set my heart on and then you know it was when I was taking my O-levels and flunked physics and chemistry <laughs> very badly that I realized that I wouldn't ever have the qualifications to be a vet and so then I thought, well, okay, I'd love to be a vet nurse then. And then my father really put the kibosh on that. You know, he just said to my sister and I, you know, everything revolves around paper. I want you to train as secretary so that you'll always have a job. You'll always be secure. And we grew up with dad, you know, we didn't have a mum and he'd been a squadron leader in the Royal Air Force. So he was 45 years older than me. So he was quite regimental. And it was kind of what your dad said goes, you know, in those days mm. as well. So... 
my sister and I did. We went out and did our secretarial courses and then both got jobs utilising those skills instead. <laughs> what career was that then, Jill, you ended up going into and, and how long were you doing that for? Well, it's amazing how things work out, Matt, because I'd always loved singing as well. And I was actually in our school choir and we used to go along to the BBC to sing every weekend on programmes called Singing Together and Time and Tune. So it was teaching children how to sing. And over those years, I just got friendly with BBC directors. I stayed on at school for my A-levels. So when I left at 18, I was just talking with some of those BBC directors and basically got a job. You know? <laughs> um, and they said, yeah. And I went along and, and I worked for the BBC for five years as just as a programme secretary, which I absolutely loved. And then I heard that Thames Television were recruiting and I also heard that they paid twice as much as the BBC, so that you know, <laughs> <inspired> me <laughs> to go along. And I'd already been trained, obviously, by the BBC as well. They were really good trainers. And I went along and got a job at Thames Television, again in programmes, and I absolutely loved it, you know, until I met someone that was to whisk me off to Hong Kong. And here I am ever since. Wow. So you went to Hong Kong because you met someone? I did. I did. He was an airline pilot working for Cathay Pacific. I very quickly decided that I wanted to follow him. And um, he got a job with Cathay and and I came out. And it was crazy because I didn't have a job here. I went along to Radio Television Hong Kong when I first arrived and do I want to work here, you know, and and went for interviews. And in the end, realised I didn't. I'd sort of lost my passion a little bit. And it was around the same time that I met someone that was walking his cat on the beach. And (laughs) I thought this was a cool thing to do and went over and said hello. And his name was David Dawson. And he was heading up the International Fund for Animal Welfare in Asia. And I became great friends with him and his wife and offered to help David voluntarily, first of all, until he left Hong Kong. And then I took Hmm. over his job. And that was pretty much it. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> I know, it's funny, it's serendipitous, it's, it's, you know, isn't in it? The number of stories that start with somebody walking a cat on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> and so you worked for I4 for, was it 10 or 12 years? Yeah, about 11 years I worked for I4 and mm. loved every second. I was doing um, a lot of undercover investigations in South Korea, the Philippines and China. So all the horrible live animal markets and cat and dog market, doing a lot of research about traditional medicine and how animals were being used and how they could be replaced, etc., etc. So I really plunged into the role and I absolutely adored it for those years until that one fortunate day that I walked onto a bear bar farm. What time period are we looking at, Jill, when you were working at I4? And for people who just don't know, what were the issues and how was welfare in the sort of different countries that you were working in at that time? Um, Gosh, well, one thing I can say is that investigating the markets in Asian countries, I was seeing exactly what we see today. That's what we've tried to make the point about the fact that they are just horrible, horrible, vile places. You know, the sights and the sounds and the smells, the sheer animal suffering and of these same animals shedding disease. And it's where I despair at armchair experts talking about regulating these places because, you know, we've been calling for decades and decades and decades for these places to be regulated. And no matter how much they say they've tried to do that, it's clear that's impossible to do that. You know, illegal trade will find its way into illegal trade. And the sheer misery and the shedding of disease will go on, which is why we're here in COVID again. So, you know, in terms of the visions then in the 80s, over 35 years ago, they're exactly the same as they are today. And and you've just got row upon row of endangered wild and domestic species just crammed together in what I used to call a melting pot of disease. You had animals that were just about to be slaughtered and knew they were. You had animals that were missing limbs from being caught in leg hole traps 
animals that were supposed to have been farmed by then, especially when SARS came through and they were talking about regulating. So you'd have masked palm civets, for example, saying that they were being farmed. And when you saw them in the cages with their legs missing, you realise that they hadn't, of course, been farmed. They'd been caught in the wild in leg hole traps. And I, I can't, you know, dogs being killed in front of you just bludgeoned into unconsciousness and then they would wake up again screaming and we would be screaming at the traders kill them just please kill them just kill them quickly and their misery Mm. and you know female dogs and cats aborting their young because of the sheer stress and then those newborns being thrown to other species to feed them the whole thing was unbelievable I think and I'm sure there's a dark box in my brain somewhere that has closed on those images Mm. but you can't ever quite forget them. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I think everybody has their own coping mechanism for dealing with the atrocities that you unfortunately get to see on a almost daily basis. Um, We've asked a couple of other guests about this as well. But for you, how do you cope with that? How do you find that place to reconcile what you've seen and be able to carry on? Um, Well, with the markets, I've always looking through the lens of a camera, Hmm. you know, no matter how shocked and distressed you are, I always say sorry to the animals that I'm filming. And then other times, you know, I've been able to actually take an animal from one of those markets. So between us in Animals Asia, we've rescued several dogs, for example, from these markets, and they've gone on to be the ambassadors. I mean, we're not a, you know, a rescue organisation for dogs per se, because we're focusing so strongly on bears, and because we're doing a much more, if you like, holistic series of programmes across China and across Vietnam to bring the public to understanding that dogs are our and cats are our friends and not food. But, you know, sometimes you go into these markets and you come across an animal that just holds your gaze and there is nothing in the world that you want more than to rescue it and bring it back to the sanctuary and just, as I say, just have them as a sort of pivotal point that people in these countries can say, oh my gosh, this is an amazing animal. You know, now I see why we should treat dogs and cats with respect and indeed all species. You know, as a vegan, I'm very passionate about every animal. But I think if you start with dogs and cats as our very best friend, you can then go on to other equally intelligent and sentient animals and talk about how they're treated, for example. So that was one way with the market visions that, that I saw. Another one is just to, I think, just be part of the rescue with bears, for example, just to have a fantastic team that you're working with and able to cry in front of each other, able to help each other through trauma, But also just having that satisfaction of rescue, it is important. And to be able to help individuals from their trauma and be able to engage the general public to learn from them as well and convince change through what they're seeing. I'm really interested in how you found the transition, Jill, back in the 80s. You went over there for the first time from living in the UK. How did you find that? And then I can imagine there's a bit of a culture shock maybe in terms of seeing the dog markets and seeing sort of the other issues at hand. Was it a huge shift for you or, or did you find that you naturally just adapted and, and got on and, and sort of went with the flow, so to speak? Oh, that's a really good question as well. I just, I think when you're just so focused and you see stuff like that, you can't unsee it. You just can't. I just knew from then there was a journey and, and you know, I wanted to do what I was going to do. And I, I had already met so many people, especially in China, that felt as I did about animals. So I knew that there was hope. There was one animal welfare group when I started, and now there's over 200. Even then with the one group, you just see this incredible passion of people that want to create change and know that they can. 
more importantly as well. And I think with that, you can't ever turn around and walk away. You just have to keep moving forward. Mm. And that's basically what we've done. And I'm astonished now. I'm just astonished in a good way to see the progress that people in China have made, all these groups, all these amazing, intelligent, passionate, creative groups that they have seen fundamental change from the ground up right up to law now today and obviously how much more animals are being helped as a result of that yeah absolutely i think it's something that we talked about this before on the podcast is when you look at people's reactions and knee-jerk reactions to seeing the awful things in countries that they don't live in and have very limited knowledge of and they villainize certain aspects of it without recognizing how much progress there actually is and how much activism there is and how much passion there is in these places, whether it be China or Vietnam or any other country, of people on the ground wanting exactly the same things and fighting for it as passionately. And it's so important that organizations recognize that and promote that and show that it's not an us and them. It's like, we're all in this together and there's people everywhere who believe in the same thing and are working towards that progress that you are seeing on the ground now. It's one of the things that annoys me the most, Harry, just to hear these xenophobic comments and just to make the sweeping statements that everybody in China eats everything with four legs except a table, you know, and all these awful statements that you hear where nothing can be further from the truth, as I say. You know, in the early days, yes, we used to get a lot of um, instances of animal cruelty that we'd be going, oh, my goodness, what do we do now? How can we help? Where do we go from here? You just don't have to do that so much anymore because the groups are doing it for you. When someone is publicly exposed for being cruel, those groups are on it so quickly you wouldn't believe. And they are dealing with it in the right way to make a difference in China. And that's what I love to see more than anything. I think. And how can we hold our heads up? Whichever country we come from, we are responsible for the most egregious cruelty. But I think just more in other countries, especially in the West, especially in the UK, for example, in the US, things are done behind closed doors. And that's precisely why slaughterhouses don't have glass doors. It's precisely that reason. And why they have ag-bag laws now, you know, to stop people filming inside these terrible places because they have got something to hide. And I think China gets more exposed because Previously, you'd see a lot of this stuff in the in the live animal markets, but I can bet that a lot of it is really no different, even in some intensive farming practice examples, where every expose that has been done has shown the most shocking example of cruelty to these creatures that were never on the statute books, that were never allowed by law, but are still happening nevertheless. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned before, Jill, that, and again, I know this is something that you've talked about before, but you said that there was that defining moment when you were at I-4, when you first went to a bile farm, Mike, whilst you were visiting all of these horrors. And that was the one that stuck with you most. And obviously that was the turning point for you. That was where Animals Asia was born. And so what was that, for people that don't know that story, what happened there? What was the circumstance? Well, um, so I had a phone call from a journalist friend of mine who had just come back from a bear bar farm and he knew I worked with I4 and he just was so shocked by what he'd seen. He just said, Jill, you have to go there. You have to look at this practice. And it was a practice I'd hardly even heard about. And I certainly knew nothing about Asiatic black bears or any bear (laughs) actually at all. And I just felt compelled to go. So I grabbed a couple of friends of mine and we went across the border and we joined a tour group and snuck onto the farm. And the farmer and his wife were really hell-bent on selling us bear bar products or showing us the breeding bears where they were kept in slightly better conditions, obviously, because they're breeding for the trade. 
So you had these fishing lines that they gave you that you put apples on the end of and you teased the bears and that was supposed to be a really fun day out. And, of course, we just watched with growing horror because we knew that wasn't the worst of what we were going to see. And we broke away from the group and we found some stairs into a basement. My friend had told me where to go. And um, we walked into a room with 32 caged moon bears. And it was quite dark. I couldn't see very well. But as I got close to the cages, I heard these strange popping vocalizations. And the closer I got, the louder these vocalizations became. And I knew from that second that that was my first lesson of a moon bear. It was a lesson of fear because my presence as a human being was giving this bear the anticipation that something horrible was going to happen to his or her body. Mm. And then as I was looking more closely at these animals in the cages, it was a catalogue of torture. It was just awful, you know, with catheters protruding from their abdomens where the bile was taken, the scars across their bodies, the fact they had teeth missing from bar biting, so they'd broken their own teeth, some were blind. I mean, it, it just went on and on. And as, as I was walking around in absolute shock, I backed too closely to a cage, felt something touch my shoulder, turned around, and there was a female bear with her paw stretched through the bars of the cage. And mm. it was one of those crazy moments that because I didn't know anything about moon bears, it seemed the most natural thing in the world just to take her paw, not realising that mm. she could have caused me the most horrendous harm, of course. And we've seen it these days with kids that have parents who are bear farmers. There's one notorious picture where I've seen a young seven-year-old with both arms missing. So I had no anticipation of, of anything like that, except that this bear had her paw through the bars of the cage and was reaching out to me. And I just took mm. her paw and she squeezed my fingers and I just stared into her eyes. And, and that was it. As you say, it was a turning point, a life-changing moment. And I knew from that second, it was like a thunderbolt. You know, I'd never be the same again. <laughs> and uh, I haven't been. And that's what started everything about understanding the industry, rescuing the bears, working with local communities, just doing everything in our power to take that suffering away once and for all and turn the industry around. And what was that journey like? Because this was in, if I remember correctly, this was 93 and you founded Animals Asia in 98. So there's a five-year period there where obviously this event had happened and you knew you wanted to do something about it. And from the time that it happened to forming an organization that was solely dedicated at that time to dealing with it, did you try and do something where you were like to make that decision that an organization needed to be set up and everything that goes with that decision? What was that process like for you? Um, I think, you know, the first thing I wanted to do was just understand the mechanics of the industry and mm. the use of bear bile and what it entailed. And I think like many, many of your listeners was very willing to write it off as a sort of witchcraft almost. And I got a short, sharp shock when I started speaking with traditional medicine doctors who assured me that bear bile had been used for millennia, although in very small amounts for very specific illnesses and nothing like the exploitation of the bile and gallbladders today. But it was, you know, really understanding that it was efficacious. It was used as a cold medicine in traditional Chinese pharmacopoeia to treat heat-related illnesses like high fevers and high temperatures. And then I went on looking more extensively about the synthetic version as well. And that surprised me too, because it seems that from the 50s, bear bile has been synthesized, not from using bears, but chemically in a lab to treat a whole, again, a whole raft of illnesses, mm. gallstones, liver complaints, etc. 
and just realizing, my goodness, you know, there is something in bear bile that actually works. And that something is, is a very essential acid called ursodeoxycholic acid or UDCA. So if anyone of your listeners is taking UDCA, they are taking a synthesized bear bile. Hmm. Um, and it, again, because it's proven to work. I mean, that's, I guess, the difficulty, isn't it? When, as you said, you know, you want to write these things off as witchcraft and that there's a nonsense to it, but obviously there isn't. And it's something that if it is effective, then as part of finding a solution, you need to find an alternative. And there are herbal alternatives as well as the synthesized one, aren't there? Exactly. There's 54 different herbal alternatives in traditional Chinese medicine, another 32 different herbal alternatives in Vietnam. And as you say, the synthetic as well. Mm. So, you know, as we always say, no one is going to die for the lack of bare bile. How open are people to the alternatives have you found has it got easier or or is that quite a difficult thing because i can imagine you know that's a habit that's been formed and, and that's very difficult to change has that been an evolving process very much and it depends on the doctors that you're working with as well of course because you know there are a lot of extremely ethical doctors that don't like using animal products and will always find the herbal alternatives to take their place and we found that you know in both countries in china and vietnam Interestingly, in Vietnam, we've been working with the Traditional Medicine Association of some 60 to 70,000 members, and they've been fantastic in pledging to end all use of bare bile by the end of this year. And we also work with individual doctors from this association to have clinics in Vietnam so the general public can go along to the clinic. They can try out the herbal alternative to bare bile. Usually in Vietnam, it's used as a topical treatment to treat bruises and things. So they can use that topical treatment. They can see that it works. And then, of course, they're telling their friends and they're all coming back to the clinic a month later. And the word is spreading that you don't need a bear to treat your illnesses. So that's why I say, you know, that all this thing is a very holistic approach to working in these countries to understand the discipline, if you like, of traditional medicine and how you can influence and help and work with and collaborate with traditional medicine practitioners so that the local community understands things like demand reduction and why it's so important to respect bears in the wild and take the alternatives that exist to replace them. What was the exact year, Jill, that you saw the bear? And what was the scale of the issue at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, thousands and thousands of bears in multiple countries of Asia. So at that time, there was, I think, about 1,600 bears in South Korea. There were, oh goodness, there were hundreds of bears in Vietnam and thousands in China, of course, as well. And since then, bear farms popping up in Myanmar and in Laos as well, but to a much lesser extent. But we knew we had to focus. We, you know, we were very small team, so we couldn't be doing these projects in every single country. So I think because we sort of first started in China, we wanted to work there. And obviously Vietnam as well was the second country that we did the research and worked there. And since then, actually, South Korea has made bear bile extraction illegal, although there's some maybe 500 bears left on bear bile farms there, where when the bears get to about 10 years of age, the farmers are allowed to slaughter them and sell the whole gallbladders. But at least I guess they're not allowed to take the bile anymore. And we know that the numbers are coming down. And we are also working with local groups in Korea who have been out to our sanctuaries in both China and Vietnam to look at how the management, the construction of the sanctuaries, etc. in the hope, I think, that they want to do a similar thing for the bears that are left in Korea as well. It's a huge problem. But I think the one good thing 
that we're celebrating now is the work in Vietnam, where we've been given the go-ahead with an official memorandum of understanding with the Vietnam government to end bear bar farming once and for all by the year 2022. And so there are around 496 bears on farms there in that country. This is a manageable number. This is you know, something that we can start to fundraise to build sanctuaries and obviously just close the industry down there once and for all. So we're really, really proud of that. This is one of our founding goals and we've achieved that now in Vietnam. That's incredible. That's such an incredible result and obviously decades of work to get there, but that's amazing. I was actually out to Vietnam last year and actually managed to get to the sanctuary out there, met with Tuan and spent the day there. And it was somewhere I've wanted to go and see for many, many years. And it was just such an incredible experience to go out there to see those bears and to understand where they've come from and what they've gone through. And to see the life that they have there now, it's almost indescribable. I mean, obviously anybody can go onto the Animals Asia website and see the videos and the footage of these bears that are just living this glorious life and the turnaround from where they came from. But to have achieved what you've done is quite remarkable, Jill. Did you have any idea at the time when you set out? I know obviously you had ambitions and the intention was always to get to this point. But when you look back, can you believe how far you've come? <laughs> Absolutely not. This was blind faith in all its glory, I have to say. If you said to me, you know, then you're going to be looking at two sanctuaries. And let me boast a bit, they're award-winning sanctuaries. We got the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries Award, which again, we're really, really proud to have got. I mean, our protocols, we've got protocols on protocols. And we have the most amazing teams in both countries, you know, headed up by Ryan in China and Heidi in Vietnam on the sanctuary side. And on the logistic and strategy side, of course, we've got the amazing Tuan in Vietnam that you met, mm. Morris in China and many, many others. You know, we have the most phenomenal team and you don't get to this stage unless you do have an incredible team. And I'm just really, really proud of them all because they have got us where we are today. But as you said, I would never have believed we'd have rescued 600 bears by now, 600 and goodness, what is it now? 35 bears by now and have signed the final declaration to end it, you know, in Vietnam. It, it puts the biggest smile on your face because mm. it's, you know, it's all been worth it, Harry, I have to say. I mean, it would have been worth it anyway, even if we'd only rescued one, but mm. to actually be on the final pathway. I mean, the way as well that we're ending bear farming in Vietnam, I have to say that we're doing this so that there are no enemies. You know, mm. we're doing this so that the country wants to join us. It's not like you're going in there waving this big Western finger and saying, you shouldn't be farming bears. It's something that the country is behind us. And, you know, not just the general public, but now the government as well, mm. um, because there are no enemies. The farmers aren't enemies. The government aren't enemies. You know, no one is. Everyone is a hero for bringing this promise now to fruition. And that's such an important model. And it's something that, again, Matt and I have talked about several times, is that partnership, those involving and engaging everybody that is part of the problem and therefore part of the solution and not villainizing anyone in particular, calling things out when they need to be called out, but also involving people to find that solution. And so to have the farmers engaged, to have the government actually see it as a viable thing and that there is mutual benefit to doing it is a strategy in order to, to get to that end result. And it's such an important lesson for so many other organizations working on every other conceivable issue anywhere around the world. It's a model that we should all be following. You know, I don't think any of us like being told what to do. No one likes a mm. bully, you know, and 
as you say, if you can navigate your path where you have people on board that were actually stakeholders in the industry, mm. if you can do that, then I think not only ended something, but you've set up the future of not having it start again. Mm. And I think that's the most important thing. If people give up something under duress, they will inevitably find a way to start it again. Mm. But if you, if you find a way to end something where everybody is on board then it's very unlikely to begin again so yeah that's that <laughs> <laughs> it's so true it reminds me when i went out to south korea with lola um oh, it must be 10 years ago now and we met with a group on the anti-dog meat tray that was out there and we were trying to find solutions and trying to come up with a campaign message that would do exactly this that would involve people and the person that we were speaking to the woman that we were speaking to she said, oh, the problem here is South Koreans don't like being told what to do. <laughs> you mentioned that before, and I've heard that pretty much every country I've ever worked where you actually talk to somebody from that country and the campaigning message is, oh, the people from Lithuania don't like being told what to do. People from Vietnam don't like being told what to do. It's not a country thing. It's a people thing. And people don't yeah. like being told what to do. And it doesn't matter where they're from or what the issue is or who's telling them. It doesn't work. It's a good way of getting a message out there to kind of highlight it. But for change, it just doesn't work. Yeah, no, clearly not. Clearly <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah, we don't like bullies. We don't like to be told what to do, any of us. Yeah. And you know what? It takes longer. Of course, it takes longer sometimes to work through this process because practices in the past, if they've ended, that you know, they will start again mm. because you haven't ended it properly. Now today is with Vietnam. You imagine with the Vietnam government. I mean, when I first started in Vietnam, many government officials were bear farmers. To see today, the officials now handing out leaflets at tourist hotspots saying, you're not allowed to go to these bear farms. Don't buy bile. It's illegal. And you will be in trouble if you do. It's unbelievable to me. And so patience definitely is a virtue because you, I think you just have to work at it that little bit harder and that little bit longer. Mm. But the end result is that little bit stronger too. Yeah, absolutely. I was really interested in your, you went from working for such a fantastic organisation that I thought was such an amazing infrastructure and support system. What were the skills that you had to learn quite quickly or, or things you needed to learn that you didn't know yet when you went from that to setting up your own organisation? Oh, gosh. Well, obviously fundraising. I mean, oh, my goodness. I mean, just setting up an organization. I had no idea. None of us had a clue. It was crazy. And you just do it. You just get through it, don't you? And you learn little by little. And that's exactly what happened. It's all a world. You know, it's just unbelievable to me, really, that we had the audacity to want to do something like that you know, <laughs> and expect to survive as well. You know, and it has to be said in the first year, I forward generous and gave us some seed money. So we were able to start at least on the administration side. And as I say, very quickly learn to start getting out there and fundraising and what direct mails were and, you know, what face-to-face -face fundraising was and some of the tricks of the trade and I mean, just even getting registered, even the legal side of everything. I mean, the one thing I knew, you know, was that I had to have the proper people in place. Mm. So I got a lawyer, I got a vet, and I got a financial person on board. So all skills that I didn't have. And I just knew if we were going to go embark on something like this, we had to have people that were absolutely qualified in those areas to be able to sort of keep the organization safe, if you like. Very, very vertical learning curve, I have to say. <laughs> I empathise. <laughs> oh, God, change animals. I knew it was going to come in. You knew I was going to well, shoehorn it in there somewhere. But the thing is, Jill, and this is, again, this is a, a huge hats off to you. Animals Asia 
was such an inspiration for Change for Animals Foundation. We wouldn't exist if you didn't exist. And that's not an understatement. Lola, who obviously is a, a dear friend to both of us, you're a personal inspiration to her. But the journey that you've gone on is mirrored through her in, in some way as far as her passion and her dedication to the dog meat trade. And the transition from seeing an issue, needing to do something about it and deciding to set up an organization, which is something that Lola, myself and Sue's decided to set up Change for Animals Foundation. When we did that, we looked at Animals Asia as the perfect example of how to do it, what we were trying to achieve and the inspiration to know that it could be done. And so, like, I just kind of want to say thank you because we wouldn't be where we are if you hadn't have done what you've done and pioneered it in the first place. Wow. My gosh, that's so nice of you. I mean, that's, yeah. I will say it now, and I absolutely, 100% conviction. Lola, I've always been her number one fan. She knows that. I absolutely adore her. And I just think that she has got it exactly right. Just the way that, again, she puts the projects out there, you know, what she does, getting people on board. Mm. She's phenomenal. She's an absolute whirlwind. And, you know, having twins now, for goodness sake, and <laughs> Layla as well, and not to mention a whole sanctuary of animals that she's rescued. Absolute wonder woman. Incredible, yeah. incredible girl. And, and so well done, you guys for all you've done for Change for Animals. It's a brilliant, brilliant organisation. Yeah, it's okay. Thank I you. mean, let's let it, Jill. <laughs> you know, come on. You know, I'll a bit left out. <laughs> um, so I echo everything that Harry has just said about Animals Asia in that it's an organisation that I share with everyone as an amazing model. I said it at the start of the podcast that I love how you, you engage people who might not live in these countries. They can feel involved and they can actually, the money they donate or the way in which they work, they know it's all going towards helping their bears. But just for my own personal interest, you've said a number of times, you have this fantastic team around you and you can see that in the work. And that must be down to your amazing recruitment process. And for my own, this is the most boring question I've ever asked, but for my own interest, Jill, what do you see in people? This must come down to your ability to spot talent and spot the right people. When you're sitting at the table, and, and we all know that there's so many people that want to work in this industry and they're driven by passion, but what is it that you really see in people? And this is not for my own benefit, so I can go for a job at Animals Asia, can I just say one day out, Jill? But what do you see in people? <laughs> I'm just so pleased. I think mostly I've got it right. I really am a people person as much as an animal person. And, um, you know, in the early days, of course, when we were recruiting, it's not easy to recruit people. But this is hard to articulate. But it's something that we know as an organisation, we've always had very high ethics, very high. And we've always been guided by kindness. And it was just something that came really out of the blue just recently in the last year or so that we thought, my gosh, we've always been living by all these principles why aren't we shouting about them now? And that's where we've decided to do exactly that. And next month we are launching The Only Cure is Kindness. And it's begun to be launched now. So I don't think I'm going to get told off by our comms guys. <laughs> but it's really talking about kindness in action and then having four pillars underneath that of tenacity, respect and empathy and courage. And again, these are the guiding principles under which we have always operated. And we just want to shout about them now from the rooftops because it guides you in who you work with, who you recruit, how you manage programs and strategies now and into the future. It is our 
Bible, I guess, if you like, of how we and people that work with us should behave. And we've taken to reminding ourselves a lot, whether it's staff or whether we're working with supporters, you know, we say, wow, that's courage in action. Wow, that's tenacity in action. And we find that it's a principle that it becomes easier and easier to shout out about and live by. So it's thank you for your boring question, Matt. It allows me to shout out and say. <laughs> and it wasn't a totally innocent question. Was it? <laughs> you are furiously taking notes now so that when you put in a job application for Animals Asia, you're going to shoehorn those four words straight into it and yeah, show the courage is, and tenacity. Harry <laughs> uses this podcast for his reasons. I use it for my reasons. No shame whatsoever. No shame. So, uh, I, I was going to say we're so lucky. Well, we've got amazing celebrities on board. I can't even divulge them, but we have incredible celebrities. We have been so lucky that have been willing to wear the T-shirt and join this campaign that's going to go out with all guns blazing. That's a bad word, actually, for empathy, isn't it? But anyway, it's, uh, it's going to be a fantastic campaign and we're going to be watching very closely and hoping that the world is going to join us. I really want to make sure as well, Jill, is to just spend just a few minutes talking about some of the other work that Animals Asia does. What are some of the other initiatives that Animals Asia has taken a lead on and brought about change with? Oh, goodness. Well, I have to say our cat and dog welfare team in China who have been breaking their hearts and working their socks off for decades again. And finally, in May of this year that you may have read about, we now know that the Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs have taken dogs off their national catalogue of livestock and poultry genetic resources. And as of 27th of May, and with the approval of the State Council, now the sale of cat and dogs and their meat in China is now illegal. And that's another one of our founding missions. And you know, Look, I know that this practice will still carry on. There will be pushback from the industry. Of course there will. It's mm-hmm. going to take a long road again on enforcement and getting this put into practice. But the fact is that it is now absolutely illegal, as I said, to sell dogs and cats for consumption. Mm-hmm. So we are thrilled with that and really raring to go on working with lawyers as we are already on the enforcement side. Oh, it's a fantastic success and really amazing. And what you said is absolutely right. There's this assumption on some of these issues that there's an on and off switch, you know, that when something happens, immediately the industry should stop. But there's a transition period. And the fact is that this is such a significant step. The recognition from the government there to make it illegal is a powerful message. And yes, the enforcement part is the next step, but this is a huge, huge success. And hats off to the guys that have been working for, as you said, decades to get this to happen. Something to be celebrated. It is. And it has to be, as I said at the beginning of this, holistic programs in China. Otherwise, I don't think it would ever have come about. You know, you have to bring the public to understanding about animals that then they ultimately want to protect. Mm. So things like Dr. Dog, sending dogs with their wonderful volunteer owners into hospitals and disabled centres to show that unconditional love that dogs can bring, to show that they can reduce your blood pressure and your cholesterol levels and make you feel good and have hospitals buying into that and really seeing the effects for themselves of dogs visiting their patients and just being there without judgment, as I said, and dogs going into schools with our Professor Paws programs and teaching children how to read, believe it or not. Absolutely true. 
papers are out there all the time showing that children are far less embarrassed to read to a dog than they are to a teacher if they've got learning disabilities. And so all these areas, you know, having the conferences with the local groups, the local NGOs and government officials in the same room so that we can share all the issues out there and how to reach some of the solutions we need to reach. Or, oh gosh, what else? What else? The, the advertising campaigns, the presentations at schools and universities, using celebrities to get the message out there as well, working with the government officials very, very collaboratively across the country, working with the NGOs on shelter improvement and helping rescue animals and helping to be a showcase for the public so that they can adopt those same animals out. All of these different areas suddenly coming together where you realise, oh my gosh, it's reached the end point now and really has helped the community at large to understand the value of dogs and cats in our community and how we benefit from being in harmony with them. It's fantastic. Really fantastic. So much to celebrate there. I wonder, Jill, if you could go back to your younger self, and I guess this also parallels to advice to anybody that's listening that has that passion and dedication and wants to do something. But particularly for yourself, if you could go back to when you started Animals Asia or at some point when you were at I4, what advice would you give yourself at certain particular points in this journey? Um, patience, I think. It has to be you know, prepare to be patient. But I don't equally don't want to undo the passion as well for anyone that's thinking of doing the same, because you're just so gung ho, and you're just so out there and wanting to achieve so much and thinking you can do everything, you know, and it's a bit of a short, sharp shock when you realise that you need a lot more patience than you've given yourself credit for. (laughs) So (laughs) main thing is just remember that you're going to grow an old lady trying, you know, to do, (laughs) to get these people under your belt. And also, I think my biggest, my only regret, actually, is just not learning the language. I wish I had learned Chinese. I wish I had. I'm incredibly great friends with so many people in China and Hong Kong and in Vietnam. and stuff. But I think I would, I think we would be closer if I could speak their language. I know that sounds strange after all these years, and I love them to pieces. But I think even with our staff, I really regret not being able to sit down and having a good old gossip, you know, mm. with some of our Chinese and Vietnamese staff, because I just look into their eyes and I love them. And I think, oh, I could just so laugh with you and get on maybe better with you if I really understand that stood the person you are, because, of, you know, if it weren't for a, a language barrier between us. I think whether you like it or not, or what, you know, you're a role model, a real inspiration. And I think in particular, the fact that you were able to launch such an incredible project in a different part of the world to where you were, you grew up in. That's quite a unique thing that I think a lot of people maybe, let's say in the Western or even where you are now, maybe wanting to go and work in other parts of the world and set up a project of your own in a country that is not where you're, maybe you, it's your native tongue. I just wondered, is there a particular skill that you would recommend to people that maybe are thinking of doing that, that you've learned from your incredible experience? I think, again, it's it's just being kind and not sort of expecting the world to follow you because of something you don't like. You know, you have to just understand cultural differences very, very much. You really have to integrate yourself within that culture. You know, as I say, language barrier aside, I think I did make every endeavour to do that. And this is home for me now. I love it here. And I love both China and Vietnam. Equally, I love everything we do. And it's, as I say, just putting kindness in action to take the words of our new tagline now. (laughs) And, you know, that old saying of, you know, you've got two ears and one mouth and use them in the proportions that they were meant. And I think that's a really good piece of advice as well, is to just to listen to what people are trying to tell you. And then you can navigate the road a little bit better. 
And, you know, one final thing is that I have a hero and a mentor and her name's Virginia McKenna. And Mm. she heads up the Born Free Foundation. I fell in love with Virginia when I was eight watching Born Free. And I was lucky enough to become a friend of my heroine. And I phoned her about a year before I was wanting to start Animals Asia. And I just thought, I need to talk with Virginia and see what she says. Is this a crazy idea? Shall I go ahead? And she just said two words. uh, Sorry, three words. I can't count. Just do it. Just do it. And if you have that, that passion and that focus, you will get through everything. You will. There's going to be horrible, horrible days and times and experiences, but you will get through it. That's great advice. Everything you just said, Born Free was my, I named my first cat Elsa when I was a young And I love that cat. And that film means so much to me because I honestly believe my love, particularly for lions comes from, but for nature, that film. And, Absolutely. You know, I share that so much with you. I mean, Virginia's not friends with me, unfortunately. I can't ring her. So, you know, she doesn't answer the phone when I'm in. Oh, bless you. <laughs> I tell you. My, what do you call it, when you have a dream, is a dream come true. Your bucket list, yeah. you know, was sitting in a Jeep in Kenya with Virginia. I was sitting to the side of her looking out at a pride of lions as they were walking past. And Virginia was talking behind me about the lions and the pride and just all about everything. I, it's all a bit of a blur, except the fact that I remember just crying. She didn't even know I was as I was watching the lions and thinking, Behind me is my heroine and my friend and my mentor who is now with me in Africa talking about lions. It took me full circle from when I was eight years of age to when I was at that point and I was just breathless with joy. It's amazing. <laughs> what an incredible experience. Yeah. Wow. And you know what, Jill, people not to you know worship at your altar, but people will do the same with you as well. You know, like for me right now getting to speak to you is an incredible honour and privilege. And I'm sure there are so many people that are, would love to visit the sanctuary and be able to hear you talk about the bears and they'll shed a tear at your inspiring story and the incredible organisation that you've led. And um, yeah, now I'm rambling, so I better stop. Yeah, and desperately trying to get a job. <laughs> You're embarrassing yourself now, Matt. I mean, you can oh. be subtle about it. Thanks, Harry. Oh, bless you. <laughs> I've never even watched Born Free. I made all that up. <laughs> come and see the sanctuary. Absolutely. Anyway, if you can come, you're, I promise you, if you come to either sanctuary in China or Vietnam, you will say, you never told me it was like this. Yeah. Everybody does. As No matter how much you gush about it, when you come, you'll go, oh, I had no idea. Because it is food for the soul. And that's exactly what they both are. They are food for the soul. They're beautiful, beautiful places. Yeah. It is. And just... To get so close to those bears and see their faces and their personalities. And we were so lucky because we were, my wife and I, when we went out there, they'd shut the bears into the inside area and we went with some of the staff to put food and the tea scent around for the environmental enrichment so that when they got released out, they could go and forage. We spent a half an hour or so doing that and putting these dry fruits and nuts and all these little hidden places and then going up onto the top of the building and then they let the bears out. And it was just... It was such a magical experience. It was one of those once in a lifetime, but not once in a lifetime, because I could imagine getting the same joy 
watching that every single day. And I imagine that's what the people there and you Aww. feel like every time you see it, it's that same joy of watching those bears go about their business and play and forage and explore. And what a privilege it was to see them so close and that connection that you feel with them. It was just yeah. one of the most beautiful experiences that I've had. It really was incredible. It's the loveliest thing, Harry, you're right. And also to see our staff as well, the light in their eyes, the mm. way that they explain all that, you know, we have reports on reports on reports every single week and they are written with such intelligence and knowledge and love. They really are. And, and yeah. we couldn't do better than the teams that we have in China and Vietnam. They are superb. They just work so cohesively together. They just get it. And that's what makes the sanctuary such a place of peace and love for the bears. Yeah. And I should say as well, I want to pay real tribute to all of our staff in Animals Asia. This isn't just about the sanctuaries, as wonderful as they are, but it's everyone, whether they're doing the marketing or the design or the communications or the finance or the admin side, every single one. We are so, so lucky with our teams everywhere. They're just, they're just phenomenal. And I really yeah. want to pay tribute to them all and thank them. Just thank them for making this foundation what it is today. <laughs> What a fantastic episode, Harry. You know, we have been so privileged already in season two to have spoken to some inspirational figures. And I'd like to hope that the listeners found that as inspiring and as interesting as we did when we were talking to Jill. It was such a pleasure to speak to her. She's such a lovely, genuine, down-to-earth person. And it was just so nice to have that kind of conversation with her and find out about her story. And people feel like they know her because she's so present in the organization and she's such a figurehead and she's so vocal about the work they do. She's always front and center with the news. And so to actually speak to her and realize that she's as genuine and as nice and as open as you believe her to be was really, really lovely. Yeah. And what I find really fascinating is those individuals who see injustice, and we had this with Paul Watson and we've had it with some mm. of our other guests, and they don't walk away, they overcome the obstacles and create something themselves. And that is rare and a lot rarer than people think, I think, in animal welfare. It's so easy to help other people in projects. You know, you've got an amazing organization yourself, Harry. It's very easy for people to volunteer for you. It's much harder to do what you did and Suze and Lola, which is start an organization from scratch, trying to fight some form of injustice that you've experienced. And Jill Robinson, I don't think you can find a better representation of that. And if you were going to, then also next week's guest, see what I did there, yeah. is also an excellent example of this. And who have we got, Harry? Well, next week, following on from what you said, when we work in this kind of animal welfare field, there's so many things to be against. And it's not enough to be against something. You've got to be for something better. And people like Jill, people like Paul, people like Leah Garces, who is our guest next week, are the embodiment of that. It's not just about fighting against something, but it's finding a solution to make what you're fighting against better, to improve the situation, to be innovative and to do things in a different way. And Leah has worked in animal welfare for decades and she has done some incredible things, but she specifically now, well, she's currently president of Mercy for Animals. But before that, she wrote an incredible book based on the campaign that she ran for a number of years, improving the welfare of chickens in chicken farms in the United States, where the 
conditions that these chickens are kept in are horrendous. Mm. The cruelty, the numbers are absolutely staggering. And she did something that most people won't do, which is she actually found a way to work with the people in the industry to find a solution. Rather than just pointing fingers at them, she broke down those barriers, broke down those walls, and actually started to work with people. And the improvements that she's seen and that she talks about in next week's podcast are incredible, aren't they, Matt? You know, the thing is, for people listening to this, Harry and I are just fans of this industry in a way. We admire so many people, and this podcast has provided Harry and I with so many special moments. But honestly, the podcast next week with Leah says for me, I just could have talked to Leah for hours. Her bravery, how honest she is, how tireless she is, it's just so inspiring. And it's the sort of person that I aim to try and emulate in my everyday. And I know people are going to love it. And yet again, I embarrass myself trying to get a job with her. You know what's more embarrassing uh, than you trying to get a job with, with Leah? Go on. Is the fact that you have tried to get a job with almost every guest <laughs> that we've had on the podcast. And it's not the fact that it's embarrassing that you basically just WhatsApp them your CV whilst we're recording the podcast, which alone yeah. is inappropriate. But the fact that you make them feel special yeah. because you want to work with, oh, I want to work with Joel Robinson and animals. Oh, I want to work with Leah Garces at Mercy for Animals. And when they listen to this, it's like, they're just going to think, oh, we're not special. He's just looking for a job. Yeah, He'll work with anyone. And He'll do anything. What, what point are you making, Harry? I wasn't really making a point, Harry, man. I was just trying to, what? Can I, can I work for Change for Animals, please? Yes, you can. Yes! Absolutely, you can. You can work for Change for Animals Foundation. <laughs> Only joking. I'm very happy with my employer. Um, so <laughs> please tune in. It's just such an amazing episode. As always, review, subscribe, share. Tune in next week for the amazing episode with Leah Garces. But otherwise, have a great week. Have a great week, everyone. And we will see you next week. Bye.